My name is Tara Brown. I'm representing the George Floyd Foundation, and I am also a family member of George Floyd. I believe that the outcome for him could have been different if at least one of the officers would have intervened or, or tried to render aid. Uh, they all heard him say countless times, I can't breathe, yet none of the officers stepped in to help him. He could possibly still be alive today. It, it, it should be every police officer's duty and responsibility to be aware and, and to try to de-escalate before something like this happens. My understanding is this is a non-jailable offense and the force that was used against George was excessive. It was unnecessary and, and it caused his death. Police brutality and, and, and citizens being killed at the hands of the police, it, it has to stop. And I just believe that it continues to happen because there is very little to no accountability for the actions of the officers um, who commit these acts. So qualified immunity, I believe, needs to be removed. As a family, we can never get George back. But it is my hope that, that his life would at least be the catalyst for actual change. Like the kind of change that is necessary, it, it would save the lives of others. Um, and I do believe that if this, the George Floyd Act is approved, I, I think that this is going to help us do just that. George Floyd died saying I can't breathe. Thousands marched, the cops took a knee. But talk is cheap, what does it mean? Get count today. Pass the George Floyd Act. Don't let it be for nothing. Pass the George Floyd Act. Let's make it count today. Pass the George Floyd Act. It's time to stand for something. Pass the George Floyd Act. It's time to have our say. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to a special edition of Just Liberty's Reasonably Suspicious Podcast focused on the Texas George Floyd Act, which is omnibus legislation presently pending at the Texas legislature along with an array of standalone bills featuring its various provisions. This is part two of our George Floyd Act special. The music you're listening to is from radio ads commissioned by Just Liberty in support of the legislation, produced by Gabe Rose, with vocals by Jonathan Horseman, and horns by the great John Neal. The opening comments were from one of George Floyd's family members speaking to the Texas Homeland Security and Public Safety Committee in March. Mandy, you were there. What were your impressions of the hearing? Really, it was the level of grassroots support for the George Floyd Act and just how pervasive police misconduct is in Texas. People were there from all over the state. People driven from El Paso, from Brownsville. From every corner. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, people of all stripes, too. Like you had, you know, conservatives, liberals, you know, black and brown community organizers. And many family members of victims of police brutality from, again, just all over the state. Folks who locally have been in the headlines there, but maybe aren't as well known as Mm -hmm. a Sandra Bland or a George Floyd statewide or nationally. But you know, Jamel Amron's family from Harris County was there. Well, they've been fighting this qualified immunity issue for 10 years in the yeah. courts. 
Jorge Gonzalez's supporters were up from the, the Rio Grande Valley. And that's a terrible case where a month before George Floyd was killed, uh, Hidalgo County Sheriff's Deputy kneeled on Jorge's neck and broke his neck. And they dumped him in a jail cell and left him for 21 hours. And eventually he was released to his family's custody and died at home. And just terrible, terrible stories emerged and so mm. much pain just from every corner of the state yeah. uh, was in that room. It was, it was a remarkable event in that regard. And mm -hmm. I think every legislator on the dais was affected by what they heard. Yeah, and, and you couldn't not be. is cheap. What does it mean if we don't make it count today? The most controversial aspect of the Texas George Floyd Act and the main similarity to the federal legislation by the same name is the creation of a new cause of action at the state level that bypasses federal qualified immunity. To understand this issue, non-lawyers may need a little background. Federal litigation has always played an important role in ensuring that states comply with the Bill of Rights. But 40 years ago, the federal courts expanded immunities for law enforcement in ways that largely prevent police from being held accountable in civil rights cases. Notoriously, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence around these questions absolves officers unless courts have condemned the same conduct in the same context in prior cases. In effect, this test locks plaintiffs into a catch-22. Arif Panju, a litigator with the Institute for Justice, testified in committee for the Texas George Floyd Act. We caught up with him and his colleague Keith Neely before the hearing and asked him to explain the basics of qualified immunity and why Texas law needs to change. At the Institute for Justice, we believe that if there is a right, there has to be a remedy. That's why the Constitution exists to guarantee rights, and that's why it divides power amongst three branches, so that those branches, as a foundational premise, exist to protect those rights. But the United States Supreme Court created qualified immunity in 1982. And thanks to that doctrine, all government workers who violate the Constitution are immune from liability by default. And even if they intentionally or obviously violate the law, and the only way around qualified immunity is if a victim of abuse can find an earlier court case in that exact same circuit um, that, quote, clearly establishes that what happened to them is a violation of the Constitution. And they can only do that if the very same conduct happened in that previous case under similar circumstances and it, it was ruled unconstitutional. And so because of that unforgiving standard, constitutional rights often have no corresponding remedy. It's like trying to figure out, you can't get through the door to vindicate your right in court. You have to figure out a way through the keyhole. For all practical purposes, that means there are no remedies available, even though rights are being violated. We asked Mr. Panji for an example how qualified immunity plays out when police violate someone's rights. So right now, um, that victim would have the right to go to court, in federal court, under Section 1983 and raise a constitutional claim. Immediately, they'll be faced with a motion to dismiss, raising qualified immunity. And they would have to litigate that immunity issue, probably up into the appellate courts, before they ever get to come down and build a record and prove up their claim. They would have to prove that qualified immunity does not apply. Again, it's the default. So they would have to show that there is a previous case with similar fact pattern, and I mean similar, um, 
that involved a constitutional violation that was held to be such um, before qualified immunity defense would go by the wayside. And just to provide some recent examples around the country, courts have granted qualified immunity to police accused of stealing more than $200,000. Regulators who searched uh, a doctor's confidential files without a warrant. So this goes beyond law enforcement. Uh, a prison guard who pepper spayed an inmate for no reason. And uh, you know, an officer who shot a child um, when trying to kill a non-threatening family dog. So although it, this is a nationwide problem, qualified immunity is also a problem in Texas. There are hundreds of decisions in federal court that cite this doctrine. And so that's the problem right now. There's one avenue, that's federal court. And in that federal court, you have to figure out a way to make it through the qualified immunity keyhole to try to make it to your claim and actually prove it. HB 88 would change that by allowing that same person and all these other individuals I mentioned to go to state court. There's a remedy available to them. The liability wouldn't be on the officer, but be on the officer's employer, much like it is in other contexts. If the UPS truck hits you, you're suing the UPS, not the driver. Exactly. This puts the government employers on the same footing as uh, their private counterparts. And the law enforcement officers, with all their split-second decision-making, would still retain all the protections that the Constitution affords, and that's because you don't get a remedy until you prove your claim. And proving that something was unreasonable under the First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, for example, in a reasonable search and seizure, requires proving that it was unreasonable. And all those protections for split-second decisions are already in the case law. So this is a meaningful uh, but simple solution that recalibrates you know, what's the current state of affairs right now. Texas isn't the only place reconsidering qualified immunity in the wake of last year's protests. Kevin Neely described legislative efforts in other states so far on this topic. It, it has been happening in quite a few other states uh, across the country. So in New Mexico, we've recently had uh, an act that's passed both houses uh, and is awaiting the, the governor's signature that is, is very similar to what is currently going through um, the Texas legislature. It's similar to IJ's model legislation. We have a carbon copy of IJ's model legislation that's currently making its way through state legislatures in New Hampshire and will uh, hopefully soon be uh, proposed as well in Louisiana. Um, we're in, in talks with legislators in Kansas and, and in Kentucky and in Minnesota. I mean, the, the public interest and the appetite for reform is there and folks are starting to recognize, you know, if, if Congress isn't going to do anything and if the courts aren't going to correct this doctrine, well, we need to look to our state governments as the solution. They can provide this alternative avenue for relief that will actually protect folks' constitutional rights. So having heard everything that Keith and Arif said, I guess I'm most struck by how sort of backwards the current system that we have is. Not only is it a catch-22, but it's sort of relying on the judiciary to piecemeal recognize what rights can provide you know, grounds for a cause of action. <laughs> no, that is bizarre. And we didn't quote the line from Keith, but there was a comment about Police officers don't go home at night and just read Supreme Court cases or, you know, read appellate. The only people who fantasize anywhere in the world that they might do that are, in fact, appellate judges writing the opinions. <laughs> no, exactly. no one else imagines for a moment that police officers are doing, doing that. And yet it is the basis for all of the assumptions underlying qualified immunity. 
Yeah. And it's then very strange. It's very strange. And it also provides no incentive for law enforcement agencies to proactively train their officers. Right. If they are if they're always going to win in these lawsuits, they don't need to spend money on that. All they need to do is, you know, just handle these cases on the back end rather than preventing them. And it should be mentioned that this has been a problem for decades and decades now. And even when the Texas George Floyd Act was filed, there was really no reason to think any relief might come at all through the courts. The Supreme Court very, very recently did hint that they might be interested in inching back qualified immunity somewhere in the future and send a case back down to the Fifth Circuit to reconsider with a little bit more air around the question. And uh, there are some law professors who think this is a a major thing. (laughs) I tend to think, you know, it's a minor thing until we see that it's a major thing at the Fifth Circuit. But regardless, even the court's, now understand that they've gone too far with this yeah exactly i think that's what i i take away from that is that there's the reason that you're seeing colorado and mexico and these other states step up to to take this on and hopefully texas will follow suit is that this has been a festering problem for a really long time yeah so uh, so i hope we get a chance to fix it yeah i hope so too The various sections of the Texas George Floyd Act relate to various parts of Floyd's personal story. And one aspect that's gotten less attention than his death was his drug conviction in Houston based on the uncorroborated testimony of Gerald Goins, a corrupt undercover narc who was later found to have fabricated informants to get no-knock warrants for drug raids. The Harris County District Attorney sent letters to dozens of defendants to inform them their convictions were based solely on Goins' testimony and they may be entitled to have them overturned via habeas corpus. George Floyd was on that list, but he never received notification. It was sent to an old address in Houston after he'd already moved to Minneapolis. George Floyd wasn't the first Texan convicted of a drug crime based on uncorroborated testimony or a corrupt police officer. In Texas, the issue first rose to the fore 20 years ago after the infamous Tulia drug stains, featuring the same dynamics with a mendacious undercover cop exploiting the same systemic flaws that Gerald Goins would manipulate 20 years later. Jeff Blackburn is perhaps best known as the founder of the Innocence Project in Texas, but he made his name as a civil rights lawyer representing defendants in Tulia, both in criminal and civil court. We asked Jeff to dredge up some of that history to illuminate why corroboration measures in the George Floyd Act are needed. Here's how he described the problem. My name is Jeff Blackburn. I am a civil rights and criminal defense lawyer from Amarillo. I have been involved in criminal justice reform for a long time, but really got deeply involved in it after I handled a case many years ago, about 15 years ago, called the Tulia case, which wasn't really a case, but a campaign that Scott and I worked on. And one of the things that grew out of that was some clear needs for legislative fixes to what had gone on. And of course, a lot of those legislative fixes are still around. And, and 
you know, uh, and, and still need to happen. Here's what we proposed back then was what's being proposed now, which mm-hmm. is corroboration of cops in drug cases. What we got was corroboration of informants being worked by cops in drug cases, okay? Which I thought at the time was a really meaningless, I'm like, how often does that ever come up, right? I mean, (laughs) and sure enough, like on in the first week of September after that rule became effective, there were 753 dismissals And I'm like, wow, I have apparently become the most effective criminal defense lawyer in the world. I'm never going to get 753 (laughs) drug cases dismissed if I live to be 110. You know, I mean, this isn't going to happen. And it demonstrated to me the great power even of a weak-ish statute, which that one is, the one that we got passed. It still has great power because the number of people being ground up in the system all the time. So who was Tom Coleman, and how did a man awarded Law Enforcement Officer of the Year by then-Attorney General John Cornyn end up framing innocent people, forcing Governor Rick Perry to issue the largest mass pardon since the 1930s? Let's let Jeff tell you. Tom Coleman was the guy, the cop, hired by the Amarillo Police Department, and At the time, they had these things that we succeeded in abolishing called regional narcotics trafficking task forces. I believe that was the largest successful defund the police campaign in American history, by the way. Yeah, it was. No, we killed the whole thing. Because incidentally, they were all terrible. What they were doing, what these regional narcotics trafficking task forces did. Yes, They would hire the worst of the worst because they would hire like the worst imaginable cops, cops that had been fired from other jobs, (laughs) cops that that couldn't get on as a jailer somewhere. The truth is he was just a guy doing a job that he was hired to do, which was get numbers. And hey, you know, nobody was there to say these, these cases look bad. They looked terrible. They all were in on it. I mean, because everybody knew there was no, there was nothing to stop them from filing these cases. And there was nothing to stop those cases from going to trial with bad lawyers. So that's how most of them got convicted, except for two defendants that they hadn't been able to arrest. And that ultimately I represented. And then that's kind of what cracked the whole thing wide open because once they we started doing that. We, we were able to prove that on the day he supposedly got a drug delivery from my client, a lady named Tanya White, she was actually depositing a check for a worker's compensation payment in Oklahoma City. It was too far a stretch to... Yeah, well, that only is like, what, 10 hours away? Yeah, you can't really drive from OKC to Tulia, do a drug deal, and then drive back to get to the before it closes. If we had succeeded 20 years ago in requiring corroboration for undercover drug cops, maybe Gerald Goins' testimonial shenanigans would have been spotted long ago. As it stands, he was allowed to do incalculable harm before the ultimate tragedy exposed his misbehavior. Finally, standalone bills will be heard in committee this week to enact more restrictive standards for police use of deadly force and creating new duties for police to intervene when their colleagues engage in misconduct and to render aid when people are hurt, even if police officers are the ones who hurt them. 
Scott, I know you were focused on these topics for many years when you were police accountability project director at the ACLU of Texas. What do our listeners need to know about this legislation? Well, I really want to start by explaining that this question of police use of force is one of the most complicated questions anywhere in the law. And the reason is that it is a place where so many different types of law and and different statutes from different sources of authority all intersect. Mm -hmm. And so you start with constitutional limits on use of force, which largely arise out of the Fourth Amendment limits on seizure of someone's person. Mm -hmm. Then you have limits in state law, which Mm -hmm. may take the form of criminal laws, where you see sometimes officers charged with a crime for, for using force, or maybe civil statutes that allow them to be sued. And even within those frameworks, there's often several different places within state law where use of force might be addressed. Mm -hmm. So in Texas, for example, we have one section of the statute where police use of force in and of itself, like by cops, Mm -hmm. is addressed formally. And then also the statute on self-defense that applies to everyone, the Castle Doctrine and all Mm -hmm. that, really is the most frequently used defense when police are accused of excessive force in the courts. And that's in a completely different section of the code. Mm -hmm. So you've got civil, you've got criminal, Criminal. you've got multiple different places in the statute. And then finally, you have administrative limits on use of force at the local level where each department, and we have 2,500 plus in Texas, will have its own individual policies mm-hmm. on use of force. And what makes all this especially bizarre is that the federal constitutional limits don't necessarily inform the state statute mm-hmm. on statutes on these topics. The state statutes and the constitutional limits may or may not be incorporated into the local policies. Mm-hmm. And then For that matter, once you have local policies, training may or may not conform with those policies. (laughs) And so there's there's layers and layers of of weirdness and dysfunction here. And so all that to say, I wanted to give that, that massive framework because to understand what the George Floyd Act does... And there's a narrower uh, a standalone bill that has just the use of force provisions that's up this week as well, mm-hmm. is to take little pieces of this and try to take first steps. There's mm-hmm. an old, you know, the old joke about how does a lion eat, eat an elephant and it's one bite at a time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that, we're, we're, that, that's the only way you can attack a problem as interconnected and weird as this yeah what we described so what's the big important first step that folks should know about with use of force first yeah there's there's two main things that it does on use of force it takes two important first bites one is it narrows the state law use of force that's specifically aimed at police officers narrows their authorization. Right now, there are certain simply classes of defendants who they get to shoot, whether they're armed or not armed. If you're accused of a violent crime or suspected or suspected of a violent crime, then they simply get to shoot you. 
And and so doesn't we're, matter. We're going to limit that to where you need to actually have some immediate danger, some immediate threat that 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 they're responding to. Really, really important first step. Mm-hmm. Not the end all, be all, but we have to do that before we can do a lot of other things. Yeah. So the second thing it does, the state is going to create under the statute. Um, a new model policy. This will be something driven by academics um, mm-hmm. at universities. They're going to create a model policy that will be promulgated. Um, law enforcement will be involved in creating it, but it's going to be created by an independent working group. And then local law enforcement agencies will be required to adopt use of force policies that meet certain minimum standards. Mm-hmm. A model will be proposed and hopefully many of them will adopt that or something close and we can upgrade some of that administrative structure surrounding how use of force is defined and enforced and and all that at the local level so that's what the george floyd act does it takes two of those discrete pieces and And says okay let's let's take one substantive step on each of these we know we're not going to solve everything we know that there's still other pieces of this that we're going to have to come back to but that's where we let's are. Let's start here. Well, what about then um, the duty to render aid or to intervene? You know, the, those two, interestingly, have been getting quite a bit more pushback than I think anyone expected. A lot of reformers, I think, thought that those were less controversial issues than mm-hmm. limiting the use of force authorization. But law enforcement really don't want to render aid to people after they have harmed them. And the fascinating thing to me is I have yet to see a law enforcement agency's policies that doesn't require officers to help other officers if they're harmed. Yeah. You're required to render aid and required to take, to have minimum training so that you're prepared to render aid to your fellow officers. But if it's to a member of the public, they don't want to be required to do that. Mm. Uh, Similarly, with duty to intervene, we have seen quite a few agencies have a duty to intervene in their policies. Austin ostensibly has a duty to intervene in their policies. What we don't have is a police administration willing to punish officers when they fail to intervene. (laughs) And so that has made that duty rather meaningless you know, when it's just there in, a, in the policy of an agency that doesn't want to enforce it. Mm-hmm. Putting it in statute and requiring the other agencies to have it in their policies and to train on it, again, is not going to be an end-all, be-all. It, it, it wasn't in Austin. Mm. But we're, we want to raise this discussion up. We want to force police departments to have this conversation. We want to make mm-hmm. them think about what the appropriate policies are and promulgate them. And, and and this is a first step in a conversation. It's not a final word. Okay. Excellent. Pass the George Floyd Act. Don't let it be for nothing. Pass the George Floyd Act. Let's make it count today. Pass the George Floyd Act. It's time to stand for something. Pass the George Floyd Act. It's time to have our say. Next up. The state auditor recently issued a report that helps us answer a question Lone Star state leaders have struggled with ever since Texas first became a republic. In what industries is slavery profitable (laughs) as a business model? 
And when does coerced labor make no economic sense? To be clear, Texas is one of only three states that pay prisoners nothing for their labor. So all prisoner labor in Texas is by definition slave labor, which is the only circumstance under which slavery is still allowed after passage of the 13th Amendment. The auditor identified several areas where TDCJ produced goods that are more expensive than if they'd purchased them on the open market. Indeed, 46% of goods categories produced by TDCJ could have been purchased more cheaply elsewhere. I suggested making a little game of seeing if Mandy could guess in which industry slavery remains economically viable in the 21st century. (laughs) Mandy, I assume you're not only ready, but 100% comfortable with this dubious premise and prepared to endorse the auditor's notion that slavery-based industries should be judged based on their profitability. Is that an accurate (laughs) assessment of your your position? I'm going to say that I am outcome-oriented on this. I am okay with the premise. If it says what I want it to, which is no. <laughs> well, let's. <laughs> this find is just not a good idea. <laughs> let's 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 find out. Okay. All right. First up, we are in Texas, so you would expect there to be a, a sizable cattle operation here. But tell me, Mandy, do you think that raising cattle, that beef production? is a profitable slavery-based industry in the 21st century. <laughs> I I would say no. I wouldn't expect there to be much labor in that. So I wouldn't ma- imagine that you'd be saving on it. You are incorrect. This <laughs> no. is actually, yes, this it turns out beef production is far and away the the biggest profit center that they have among all of their their various have they uh, production it was 101 million dollars in cost saving where do they figure do they put in there or factor in like how much value the labor provided to each of these categories well what i'm looking at here is a table that tells us how much the saved or paid right. more than they would have paid in, um, in, in, but the beef they're not keeping, right? They're just that's selling. right. So they're 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 selling that. So so it w- should be a profit, otherwise. That's right. So that was a hundred and one million dollars in the black, their largest of all of the ag business t- categories that they that they list here. So no, beef is definitely one that slavery is still profitable <laughs> to, to to do beef at TGCJ. All right, well let's go to a, a an oldie but a goodie. Uh, if we're going to have slavery, let's talk about whether it's profitable to use it to pick cotton. I feel as though, <laughs> you know, the fact that we're still doing this in 2021, that every single day TDCJ is sending black men out into the fields in the summertime to harvest cotton is an amazing concept. So tell me, Mandy, do you believe in your heart of hearts that picking cotton remains a profitable slavery-based industry no. in 2021. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with no. I thought, I thought there were harvesting equipment for that now. You know that is a very good point. Cotton is one of the field crops they produce, and the field crops um, in Toto, cotton is the biggest one, mm-hmm. um, lost a little more than six million dollars over the last five years. So cotton is not 
profitable any longer, <laughs> according to TDCJ's experience, to pick with slave labor. It's no. not. It's not profitable. Well, the cause is lost. Well, uh, as long as they're not doing it, I'm I'm happy with that. Well, oh no, they're still doing. It. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's that's. Well, I not thought the point. I thought they were going to stop doing it if it wasn't profitable. It would be an amazing thing if they stopped doing it. Because really. I, I, we've got a lot of things that they could do with that $6 million. The history and culture behind the ag program at TDCJ is its own beast. If you've never been exposed to it, it, it's hard to explain how much it sort of drives its own train behind yeah. the scenes. And, and it hadn't changed in 100 years. In 1919, Texas stopped convict leasing which was taking prisoners and hiring them out to businesses. So like Imperial Sugar down in Sugarland would, would mm-hmm. hire prisoners and they would work in the, in the sugar fields. And in 1919, they stopped the convict leasing after big national controversies, but just brought all of that in-house mm-hmm. and have been performing the same agricultural functions even though the sugarcane's all gone yeah, um, long ago, but that's not because they wanted to stop. It's just because they picked it all. But they have continued to operate essentially the same system for the last hundred years. And so this audit is asking them questions no one has ever thought to ask before. Why do we do this? Does it make economic sense? No one's given that a second thought for decades and decades and decades. That isn't what it was about. Yeah. It was never what it was about. All right. Well, moving forward, let's talk about pork. And I don't mean pork barrel politics. I mean suey pig pork. Yeah. I, I'm going to go with yes based on the fact that beef was profitable. Are you sure? Because I would imagine that the same premises apply. There might be more overhead because of, you know, the hogs need their air conditioning well, that's to, what I was to copulate. Say. You've got air conditioning <laughs> for the hogs. We have seven special barns so that they, they, can, be, they can be comfortable because we know that hogs won't have sex if they have to sweat. This is a proven and is scientific there, fact that oh everyone God. who's fighting wild boars on their private property Knows to be true. All those hogs <laughs> have to go indoors to the air conditioning, yeah. then come back, back out, out. Yeah. before destroying your property. That is that is exactly what happens. Um, I'm going to still go with yes, based also on representatives and how proud they are of the hogs that TDCJ produces. They're they, some of the finest hogs in the state, Scott. They really are proud of those hogs. And yes, um, pork is one of the profitable centers. It turns out you still can raise hogs, even in air conditioning, based on slave labor. Yeah, and, and turn a profit. Okay. And turn a I'm profit, glad, yes. I'm glad that worked out for them. Good for them, yes. All right, last one. TDCJ operates and has for many years its own canning operation where it cans its own foodstuffs mostly for its own use. Do you believe that this is a profitable operation to run as a slavery-based institution? I I would think that there'd be a lot of labor in canning, so I'd go with yes. You know, surprisingly, 
the canning plant lost money every year over the last five years for a total of 3.3 million in losses so the canning plant manufacturing our only manufacturing example was not a profitable, profitable uh, activity you know, using slave labor i have to say i don't 100 percent understand what distinguishes having no labor costs being profitable or not profitable <laughs> i find this to be fascinating and would love to see someone really dig into that because you could have knocked me over with a feather to find that there are things you can do with no, zero labor costs and still lose money. Yeah. Well, it just makes you wonder, is it how much is the technology behind this? Is it the materials? Like what is it just security costs, I suppose. But, but either way, it's, it's, it's a bizarre thing that I would never have expected until I saw this state audit. And uh, one last thing I should mention there. TCJ's work programs really are 100 years behind the times. Mm -hmm. No one is getting out of TCJ and going to work in the cotton fields. Yeah. That's not what's happening. So a few years ago, I believe it was 2016, the state of Ohio closed all their prison farms. And, of course, Ohio has a farming tradition as deeply rooted as, as Texas does. But they closed all their prison farms because that's not the type of job that they're training prisoners to do mm -hmm. and so it didn't make any sense to have them do that labor when you could have them performing labor that might in some way correlate with something they might do in the real world yeah and texas need if this audit makes texas look at that question and start to wonder if this is the right way to go more power to them um, yeah i have never seen any way to get TDCJ to rethink these questions. They're so deeply rooted. Next up, earlier this year, Mandy published a, I'm not sure what to call this exactly, a white paper, a monograph, a, a report, a policy brief, on the law of parties in Texas. Uh, she mm -hmm. did this on behalf of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And I found all of this fascinating because it's sort of an area of the law that most people have never really deeply considered. And you have now thought about this more deeply than probably anybody in the state. <laughs> so I wanted to give you a chance here to tell us about your report. Tell us why you undertook this project what you found and what people need to know about the law of parties now that you've done all this research. Okay, so the report was really to outline what people view as the law of parties and how it results in disproportionate sentences because it's something that people talk about a lot at the legislature. It comes up on a regular basis, but Folks are not always talking about the same thing at the same time. So what is the law of parties? So, give us, a, give us a, an elevator pitch definition. So the law of parties is a provision in the Texas Penal Code that says, basically it says that you can be held accountable for someone else's conduct. And so there's sort of two big categories of how this can happen. There's sort of the classic aiding and abetting or you know, solicitation, or directing people, those are all situations where you're intending 
that someone else engage in certain conduct. You know, hiring a hitman is the classic example. Um, The other one is a bit more obscure. Um, And in the report, we've referred to it as the conspiracy parties rule. And that is if you and a friend agree to rob a bank, you're on the hook for everything that your friend did to promote that plan to rob a bank that you should anticipate. So if your friend robs a car, you know, robs a car for you to drive off, you've now, you're now like legally on the hook, hook just as culpable as your friend. Or engages in a kidnapping or, or even commits a murder. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, and and in the, in the most extreme case. So it's the law party says, I entered into this dangerous situation. I should have known better. And when my friend did something, I'm now responsible to. Yeah, exactly. Even if you back out sometimes. So in the report, we describe situations where two men um, agree to rec- like burglarize someone's apartment. And it, in, in this case, it was actually the, the defendant wanted to recover his own property. <laughs> actually, it wasn't as though he was trying to, you know, rob a place he just wanted stuff that had been stolen from him i believe we talked about this case on the podcast earlier um probably and he said you know his friend you know pulled a gun on the occupants of the of the household and his friend asked him to you know hit the victim over the head with a bottle and he said no and went into the other room to look for his stuff and when he came back there was a scuffle and a gun went off and he was actually convicted of attempted capital murder, even though he had explicitly said, I'm not participating in this. And that's the piece that I think would surprise average Texans. I think that, that the idea that there are people on death row who weren't the ones that actually you know, pulled the trigger or committed the, the, the murder itself, you know, you tend to think of death row as the worst of the worst, well, you're, you're, not the friend of the worst <laughs> of the worst. Yeah, no, right? exactly. Well, that it's actually a constitutional mandate that states limit the death penalty to the worst of friend offenders who commit the most egregious crimes under the most egregious circumstances. And that's really where Texas sort of is out of step with the constitutional requirements, both in that we have people on the row like Jeff Wood who are just getaway drivers um, who weren't even aware that their friends were necessarily armed and that the standard itself is out of alignment with the Eighth Amendment. So, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court a little over 30, 40 years ago said that if you're going to execute someone who is not a perpetrator, you need evidence that that person at a minimum was a major participant in the conspiracy and that they were reckless with respect to human life. And Texas's standard actually just show, just says that you ha- should have anticipated what your friend did to be convicted. And then there is a, se- a question at sentencing, but it just requires that you anticipate that human life would be taken. It doesn't have a requirement that the person involved was a major participant in the conspiracy. You know, I often think of these law parties cases, especially in the in the death penalty context, as part of 
this weird trend we've seen in the past 15 years or so where we've had an explosion of capital cases. We're now to the point where more than a quarter of murder cases are now Mm -hmm. charged as capital. Yeah. If if it was ever the worst of the worst, it's now pretty just average workaday murders that are there. And when you start to dig into, okay, what are the types of cases that you know, are in this, this, this expanded category of capital cases that maybe shouldn't be, you know, one of them that pops up that you think, gosh, what's that doing there? These mm-hmm. law parties cases where, okay, the guy was in the car outside. Is he really, does he really do need to be mean? prosecuted, you know, for, for what the guy did in, inside the convenience store? And, and I know we've had, you, you probably know the numbers, quite a few executions already with law of parties cases and a few more on the road still. Yeah. Um, what are those numbers? Well, <laughs> on the row, it is hard to even say um, because it's being litigated in a lot of cases. But, you know, what I can say is that, you know, nationwide, there have been 11 executions for non-perpetrators and six of them have been carried out in Texas. And, you know, at least the last two, the most recent ones have been out of Texas. Um, so we're an outlier there. Um, the problem with even in death penalty cases is that sometimes there is no specific record of how someone is convicted of the crime because, you know, our indictments are general. Mm. So, you know, there's no statement in the indictment about how someone ha- is alleged to have perpetrated a crime, which is different from some other states and from the federal system. And then also the verdict is general. So what can happen is at the trial, depending on the facts of the case and the requests from the state, jury can be instructed that they can convict the defendant on multiple different ways. And the jury can disagree amongst themselves. The judge will say, you can convict the defendant of capital murder if you think the defendant committed the murder, aided and embedded the murder, or if their friend perpetrated the murder in furtherance of the bank robbery. So the jurors don't have to agree on a theory. They don't have to agree on a theory. Wow. So in a lot of ways, in some cases, really, there is no specific way that they were convicted of the crime. Wow. That is an amazing thing to contemplate. Now, one last thing. There are uh, at least a couple of bills up related to this tell us about the legislation on these topics so there are yes there are two bills that are up tomorrow um april 6th in jurisprudence and i think the big thing to know about them is that they're both extremely modest steps in response to this problem so the first bill chairman dutton's bill 688 says that the conspirator party rule 702b just doesn't apply to capital murder you can still be convicted of murder under 702B, and you can still be convicted of capital murder under aiding and abetting. So it's not cutting off all people. It's just limiting capital murder to intentional conduct. Mm -hmm. The second option is by Chairman Leach, and I believe Dutton, Chairman Dutton is also joint authoring it, is to take the Eighth Amendment standard and make that the standard for convicting someone um, of capital murder under the conspirator party rule. So you're only 
on the hook for a murder in furtherance of the bank robbery if you're a major participant in the bank robbery and you're reckless with respect to human life. So you have some reason to know that your friend might actually kill someone. You have to know that they're armed or something of that nature. Thank you very much for telling us all about this and and thank you for producing this report. The incarceration train keeps rolling, rolling down the line. It's filled with pain and sorrow, but the driver is doing just fine. Just fine. And the passengers in cargo, when they get to the end of the line, gonna learn this train window where Lord and the ticket price show us high. Stop the train, 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 I'm getting off. Let's close out the podcast with one of our suspicious mystery segments in which Mandy and I contemplate big picture criminal justice questions to which no one knows the answers. Does police enforcement of traffic laws contribute to traffic safety? We all assume that police enforcing traffic laws are why people obey them. But from 2008 to 2020, the number of traffic and parking tickets issued statewide plummeted from 9.1 million down to 4 million. Remarkably, though, this seemed to have little impact on deaths per mile driven, which fluctuated over the period but remained largely flat. So a greater than 50% reduction in traffic tickets resulted in a roughly equivalent or slightly improved road safety levels, at least measured in terms of deaths per mile. Mandy, what do you think is going on here? So I'm really, I'm shocked. I was really surprised when I saw this data. I mean, my best guess is road design, that they're adding lanes to highways. They're figuring out how to, you know, basically move traffic in a way that's safer. That's the only thing that I can think of that would explain this other than enforcement. Well, I mean, I think the first takeaway we can, we can have we we don't know what's causing deaths to go up or down i mean they really just up one year down the next they were not you know there was really no rhyme or reason to it when you look at it over the course of the decade it was basically flat maybe went down just a little bit mm-hmm. but i think the very the, at, a, at a bare minimum you have to acknowledge that enforcement appears to have very very little to do with safety in terms of deaths that when you reduce the number of of tickets by more than half and deaths mm-hmm. just sort of stay right there right and there. don't really have any up or down at all and, and just sort of stay right in the same range. Yeah, you're right, actually. 
now I'm thinking about it, but yeah. What what are we supposed to conclude from that? Except that the five million extra traffic tickets that were given you know, <laughs> twelve years ago were weren't really necessary. Probably, except you know, it's hard to know. Like without with no enforcement, would people stick by the stay by the rules? Right. Well, and you know, enforcement serves a lot of purposes. There's an extent to which it has beyond being punishment for you know, violating a rule. It also has, as you've pointed out to me before, a sort of communications role. Yeah. That the cop sitting on the side of the road is sending a message to everyone, even as they pass by, that, oh, wait, you better slow down or you might get a ticket. Yeah. Um, but in the same way, we've seen a lot of innovative traffic calming designs. For example, I really like the one where they tell people their speed on the side of the road <laughs> and have a little sign that says you're going 45 miles an hour or the speed limit's 35 slow down yeah and people notice that and slow down those actually mostly work and it's because people aren't being unsafe on purpose that's it's it's not that the average person is is intentionally trying to be a menace mm. it's that they're distracted it's that they're listening to the radio or they're on the phone or their kids in the back seat distracting them and and they're not paying attention to everything that's going on around them so you know i do think that there's a lot of things that influence how people drive that are not oh i fear punishment mm -hmm. and seeing such a radical reduction in punishment with no impact on on safety kind of makes you think that 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 we've overstated how important that was. Mm -hmm. I think that is probably true. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, this is Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, or listen to it on my blog, Grits for Breakfast. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. George Floyd died saying I can't breathe. Thousands marched, the cops took a knee. does it mean if we don't make it count today? Pass the George Floyd Act. Don't let it be for nothing. Pass the George Floyd Act. Let's make it count today. Pass the George Floyd Act. It's time to stand for something. Pass the George Floyd Act. It's time to have our say.